It's great to be together this morning. Why don't we go ahead and just open up with a word of prayer together. Come on, Mike. God, we just uh, we want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you for the Holy Spirit. God, we come to you this morning in the name of Jesus. We pray that your spirit be with us. We pray that, honestly, Father, that our hearts could be molded into being like you. That our eyes would be able to see as you see. Not how the world has taught us to see or, or the way that circumstance has taught us to see. God, but the way that you see things. God, change our hearts this morning. Help us to just connect with your scriptures. Be with me and just let me be an instrument of your will this morning. We love you, Father. We come to you and lift up your name and your word. Pray this in, in your name, Jesus. Amen. 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 Well, a bit of good news before I get started. Uh, I, did, I did want to share that uh, we're going to have a baptism this morning. So, so Caitlin actually is going to be getting, uh, she's going to be getting baptized this morning. So stick around after service uh, for some sharing and for a baptism. That'll be going on just right up here. We're going to be able to use the hotel's pool. Uh, so we'll be out in the hallway. We'll do some sharing. And then uh, we'll get to see Caitlin born into the kingdom of God. So I, uh, I want to I wanna also just say uh, happy pre-Thanksgiving for those of you I won't see, right? Uh, sometimes that comes after, but I'm going to be ahead of the punch this time. Uh, but if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn over to Ephesians 2. Uh, we're going to be reading a passage out of there in a little bit. So kind of, you know, put your marker, put your finger uh, there in Ephesians 2, and we'll be there soon. But um, a couple weeks ago... Uh, Ben Stapleton, who's one of the teens, uh, he and I were hanging out, and uh, we were hanging out most of the day after church, and and then in the afternoon we went and saw a movie, and uh, we ended up seeing the movie Venom, right? And so, no, you know that feeling you get when you see like like a great movie, and you're just like, wow, you know, uh, or or how you. On an occasion when you, you finish a movie and your heart is like just like moved, you've been up, you've been down, you've been inspired, you feel motivated, you, you're like the courage that was there or, or something that happened, right? And, and you're just like, that was amazing. Maybe it even like changes a part of you. Venom was not that. Okay. It, it was not that. Okay. It was, it was fun. But it was none of those things. I, I did not feel like my life was fundamentally changed in any way, shape, or form. Uh, but it was fun, and that was about it. You know, but you think about what, what Ben and I did. We went together to, to hang out, to spend some time, as Americans love to do, and we went to the movies. And I don't know if you know, but like last year, I think Americans spent almost like $500 billion on movies. <laughs> Five hundred billion dollars on watching movies. I'm not talking about watching television. I'm talking about movies. And so, you know, when you think about that, I mean, why do we do that? You know, we 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 do that because we as people, and I think it's just a human thing, right? Love stories. We love stories. We love to have our hearts moved. We love to, to get in and, and, and feel an experience that someone else has had or, or to relate to it, you know. And, and so when you, you 
think about as, as a person, like, why do we do it? I think God made us this way, right? You know, when you do think about, like, how much, as Americans, we love stories. Think about, like, we, we get a lot of our stories these days from TV, right? And so they say that the average American spends five hours and four minutes a day watching television. Now, I don't know how they come up with that algorithm to find those four minutes. I figured it'd just be easy to be like, it's something like five hours, you know? Uh, but apparently that's an important thing to know. And, and they say that that number actually goes up if you have streaming services like Amazon, Netflix, Hulu on your phone. So just a quick question. How many of us have had Hulu, Netflix, Amazon on their phone? Okay. Okay. So that's the reality. I, I do too. You know, I realize it. I own it. Um, you know, but you think about when we do that. I, I think it's, it's one of the things that shows our willingness to immense or, or to immerse our lives in stories, in other people's stories, in, in the world's stories. And, and why we do it, you think of why I said like we, we love stories, it's because we want to relate to it. We, we, we feel like, oh, I can relate to that. Or we want to escape to it. Often escaping our own story to enter the story of someone else. Right? You know, and it... I think that we've got to figure out and really have an honest question about what stories do we love. You know, the title of this morning's sermon is Love the Gospel Story. Love the Gospel Story. Loving the Gospel Story. And, you know, when we think about this idea of how God created us to be drawn into these, I think we as people need them. Right? I mean, that's, that's part of why God gave us the Bible, and, and we have it as so much of a narrative and, and as a story. And really, the Bible, from beginning to end, it's this incredible story of how God loves humanity. Yeah. It really is. It's, it's this story of how God, He loved humanity, He brought us together, He made us to, to share His love with us and to have an experience with us. And then we, you know, mess it up, and then He's trying to reconcile it. All the way to the very end of the Bible is the story of how man just kept messing it up and God just kept coming back saying, all right, I'm going to keep trying to fix this. You may not be a part of it because that's been your decision, but I'm still trying to reconcile humanity to myself. That's God's story because he loves us. Right. And, and it's an amazing story. You know, but I think about <clears throat> you have a story and then with a story, you have what's called a narrative. Right. And the narrative is is the tone of a story or the tenor of a story. And so as as you can take one story and depending on the narrative you cast, you can make two very different pictures. Right. And so we have to look at when we we are being immersed in stories all the time. That's not God's story. What are the narratives that are shaping the way we see things? Because when you hear stories, you may not realize it, but stories do. From, from literally the beginning of time, you had movies, then we had books, then we had plays, then we had stories around a campfire, then you had writings on a wall. I mean, we have been trying to follow stories and relate to stories, and they've shaped our minds as human beings. And the narratives in the way in which a story is told 
also shapes how you see the world. Right? And, and it's, it's important that we know the narratives. And so I have, I have three points for us this morning. But point one is going to be know the gospel story. Alright? It's going to be know the gospel story. And, and, and I want to talk about narratives in a minute. But first, let's read Ephesians 2. Because I think this is the gospel story right here. At least a, a, a good piece of it, what we're going to look at. And I want to look at the narratives that we can even find in this story. Alright? So Ephesians 2. It says, we'll start in verse 1 of Ephesians 2. We're going to read 10 verses here. It says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. When you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in all those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. And even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ, seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace, expressed in kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Right? You know, I I love this text. Because Paul is writing to these Ephesians. And in Ephesus, they have temples all over the place. They have different gods. They have different stories that they're hearing. And, And Paul is writing them about this is the story of Jesus. This is your story. Right? Don't you forget, this is, this is you. This is what we, that God has done for you. Right? And so he's reminding them of this, but I love this text because if, this, if you're a Christian, this is your story. And you and I have this story in common. Yep. Right? We have had to come to grips with our reality. Yep. We've had to humble ourselves by acknowledging our sin and seeing our need for Jesus. Right? Well, while I was dead in my trespasses, deserving of death, God, by His love and His generosity, right, made us alive in Christ through faith, giving us hope and future. Right? And so, I look at these things, and so I think about what is the gospel narrative? Here we go. I think it's the gospel narrative is it's humility. That's one of them. I'd say there's there's at least five. There's many, but I'm just going to talk about these five, just briefly. You've got humility. You cannot have the gospel. You cannot see as God sees. You cannot read the scriptures and not learn about the humility of God. You can't be inundated with humility and the call to humility, the example of humility in Jesus. 
and, and not see that. And if you were to immerse yourself in God's Word, as you would any movie, and, and feeling the, the emotions of the Scriptures, and, and experiencing the story of Jesus, you would be overwhelmed by that humility, that narrative. You wouldn't just hear that He died for you, you would feel it. You would see, you'd feel his, the humble heart that Jesus has, right? You look at the generosity of God. It says, you know, that He could express His, his riches to us. That He was generous from, from His extravagant mercy that He pours out on us. That, that generosity is a, is a narrative of the gospel message. You have faith. If you don't, cut, if you don't see faith... In the gospel story, you're, not, you're reading a different story. Then you have hope that God is saying, I'm, gonna, I'm giving you a hope, a future. There's something great for you ahead. Don't forget. Don't lose sight. Like, hold to these things. And if, if, you, if you were to have these things stored in your heart, if you were so immersed in this story that these were your narratives, right? And the last being love. When you walk through life, what you would see, you would see things with a spirit of humility. You would see hope in circumstance. You would see, you would have faith in, in every circumstance. You would have a spirit of generosity. And, and you would see the generosity of spirit around you because as you experience so much of life's story, you would, you would be able to see it through the lens of the narrative you're most immersed in. If that's the gospel... You're going to see this way. Now, I would love to always see this way. <clears throat> Wouldn't you guys? I mean, I'd love to always have kind of a generous spirit and, and a humble heart and, and just kind of ex- have an expectation of hope and faith and, and love all the time. But I can, I can battle with the reality of what life brings my way. And I want to talk about that more in a minute. But, you know, when we are familiar with and exposed to the gospel frequently, we absorb these narratives in our hearts. They, they alter and it shapes our minds. It does. And it, it transforms us, as it talks about in Romans, right? Being renewed by the... Trans, you know, we are transformed. I'm going to read the scripture a little bit, so I'm getting ahead of myself. But we're being transformed by God's word. And so no longer being like the world... But we have talked about you know, these topics many times, and we're going to talk about these, these narratives many more times, I'm sure, over the next several years. But what I want to talk about this morning is I want to contrast the narratives of the gospel story with the narratives of the world's stories. All right, The common world's narratives. What the world kind of tries to mold and shape your mind into. You with me? All right. So why don't we take a look at that this morning? Point two, deny the world's narratives. Right? You know, I would argue that there are five predominant narratives of our world. Uh, and, and there are more, but I would say these are the five I want to hit us with this morning because I think that we can probably all relate to them in some way, shape, or form. And they're ones that the world tries to project onto us through our movies and TV and experience even the world sin and the world trying to shape our experience in the way we see, right? But we're going to talk about a few of these. 
You know, and I think as you, you consider, as the average American watches five hours and four minutes, don't forget the four minutes, they, they watch five hours and four minutes of TV a day, right? And, and I don't know if any of us watch five hours and four minutes of TV a day. Um, so, amen. But I think that we've still got to ask the question, how much of the world's message are we being immersed into, right? And so, I want to do my best to go through these quickly, but we're going to look at some scriptures with it as well. So, we look at the world's narratives. Common worldly narratives. The first narrative, consumerism. Consumerism. It's the story about how the good life that you want is through getting more stuff. Right? So, the more stuff people have, the more people will, or the more stuff you have, the more people will look to you and they'll say, man, that's a person of value. This person's got wealth, they've got it together, they seem like they're doing well. You want to emulate that person. I mean, we agree, don't we? This is, this is a, a, definitely an American message. And I was feeling even this week thinking, ooh, what Black Friday deals are going on? Mm, you know? I'm like looking it up. Figuring it out as as I'm, the the message of consumerism is already trying to pull me in. I feel it. I know it. But that's a that's an underlying narrative in in different stories, in different movies, in the glamour, in the fame, in the nice cars, in the nice stuff, and and on and on. And it it tells you even if it's not telling you, you want this. We know it's not true. And yet still, part of our heart goes and accepts that narrative. It appeals to it, doesn't, doesn't it? But it's, it's a lie. You know, you're, you're not going to be happy by the more you already have. You know, if your Toyota Corolla didn't make your soul happy, your Tesla is not going to make you happy either. I would have a lot of fun. I would have a lot of fun. But I also acknowledge... By the way, that's like the car I would desire to have most. But it's not going to make my soul happy. It's not going to make my soul happy. You know, it's a false narrative. And it tells me that if you just get stuff, it'll be true. But look at this scripture. Turn over to Ecclesiastes 2 really quick. Old Testament. So it's after the book of Psalms, after the book of Proverbs. It's written by Solomon, the wisest man who has ever lived, it is said. But let's look what Solomon, he's a king. And he's he's got immense wisdom, incredible wealth. But let's look at what Solomon says, starting in in verse 1 of Ecclesiastes 2. Check this out. I thought in my heart, Come now, I will test with pleasure. To, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is foolish. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. My mind still guided me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself. I uh, planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. 
I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasures of the kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well, the delights of the heart and man. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. And all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work. And this was the reward for all my labor. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. You know, you look at what what Solomon's writing and what is his point in the end? He says, by the end of it, you see that what he's saying is, look, sure, love what you do, but you got to love God. If you don't do that, it doesn't matter. Whatever you build, whatever you have, it will crumble, fall, fade, or go to somebody else who will take it. It doesn't matter. What matters is a relationship with God. And and Solomon, he's an incredibly wise man. He went through the experience. He gave himself every pleasure that he could find. And he said, that's not enough. And, And this just tells us the narrative of the world in that way is just not true. Right? You know, so that's, that's one. The second is secularism. Secularism is an interesting one because it's this false narrative that it says there are no miracles. Secularism says that there is no God, there's no magic, there is, there is what you can see, what you can taste, what you can verify. There's nothing besides that. And when you die, you die. The sooner you dial into that, the happier you will be. You know, if secularism provides any room for religion. It compartmentalizes it. And it says, it can go here. This is its place. It has no place anywhere else but here. And it's interesting how the world tells us this one. Because society, our our society, tells us that there's no place for faith in our modern society. Much of it does. I mean, if you think about our culture and how it tries to actively shame faith and belief in the supernatural, it's one of the narratives of our world. Wouldn't you agree? But here's how secularism, I think, gets in to us. See, the most common way that I tend to see it is when we adopt the, the narrative of compartmentalizing our faith. You know... When I go to work, I'm there to work. When I go to church, I'm there to worship. That is not what the Bible says. You know, Colossians 3.23 says, In all things work as if working for the Lord and not for man. In everything you do, we do it for the Lord. But, but secularism would tell you that you have to separate things. And your job, you're not just there to be an employee. You're, you're there as a Christian who happens to work there. And, and your service to Jesus is first and foremost, is it not? But the world would tell you, no, no, no. Mm-mm. That, that doesn't belong here. And that's not true. 
That's a false narrative. And we cannot let that, even if our employer is the one that tries to oppress that upon us, that's the world's narrative. That is not the gospel's narrative. That's not the the story of the Bible. God redeemed you wholly in every aspect of yourself. And when we say Jesus is Lord, that means He's Lord of all. Right? And so when we, we look at this, we cannot accept secularism in our lives as disciples. Because we're, we're losing out. It does not go with the gospel story. Yeah. You know, the third one is, don't fill up my inbox, but nationalism. Alright? Now, nationalism is a narrative that calls you to establish your identity with an earthly nation. And to believe that the betterment of, the, the, of that nation and the superiority, superiority of that nation is of primary importance. You know, this narrative comes through, I, I, it's, it's a fun narrative sometimes, to be honest. It, it comes through movies like Saving Private Ryan, Band of Brothers, uh, We Were Soldiers. I mean, some of my like favorite movies. Uh, because I watch them, and by the end, I'm just like, I've got like this martial pride. I'm like, mm, yeah, like heroes, courage, like America, you know, like do the right thing. We stood up for what's right, and yeah. And it's a narrative that tells you that's what's right. Yeah, stand up for that and this. And, and it creates this identity within you. And even if it's, not, if it's not straightforward, it's a narrative that seeps in that tells you here is your identity. Your identity is with this nation and this country. And this doesn't just happen with America. So I'm not talking about just American stuff, okay? I'm talking about the world as a whole tells this story. To buy in to your earthly nation as your home and your place and what you should stand up for and put first. And that does not go with the Bible. Look at John 17 really quick. John 17 verse 16. Jesus is speaking. He says... I'm in 16. Verse 16. Jesus is speaking says, They are not of the world. Speaking of his Christian, his disciples, his followers. They are not of the world, even as I am not of, of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Keep that in mind. Now turn over to 2 Corinthians 10. Second Corinthians 10. Look at verse 3. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary... They have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every... Paul goes on and says, We will be ready to punish every act of disobedience uh, of your... Of disobedience once your obedience is complete. He's, he's reminding these, these Christians, he's saying, guys, 
you don't belong here. All of the issues that have been going up on in, in Corinth, he goes, you're trying to get involved in a worldly way. We don't fight like that. You don't belong here. Our job is to tear down the stupid and foolish arguments of the world. To demolish them. And that's what, that's what the gospel message does when we're in it. Right? But he tells us that you are in the world, not of the world. And so when you identify that I'm, a, I'm an American, I'm a Christian, I'm an American, I would really encourage you, consider what is first. Really what is first. How does the narrative of nationalism affect you? Because it's there. Even if you are the most not like patriotic person, there is an aspect it's there. You grew up in America, I promise. You know, so we've got to fight against that. And even in the scripture that talks about in Second Corinthians, he's like, our job is to demolish those arguments. And tear them apart. So I'm going to try to hit these, these last two quickly. But from there we have the false narrative of progressivism. Right? Now, let me be clear. I'm not talking about a political party. I'm not talking about a, a way of being uh, in the political sense. I'm not saying that progressivism is, is you know, some bad thing. I'm saying that it's the world's thing. Okay? And it's one of the most, I think, hopeful um, and positive of the world's narratives. But here's the thing. The technical aspect of progressivism tells you that as we make forward progress as humanity, as we have economic reform and social reform, and, and as we have greater technology, that we're going to move closer and closer to a utopian society. Rather than saying, you know what, the world is broken. See, progressivism does not deal with sin. It tells us that we can, we can overcome sin just by social reform, economic reform, building greater like, technology. And, and that's just not true. We will get... Greater things will happen. And good things are happening. And I do think that as society has made progress to be more good, but we're never going to resolve sin without Jesus. And that's why progressivism just doesn't jive with Christianity. It just doesn't fit. You know, and the last one is cynicism. And I think this is probably the most modern of them all. Um, the narrative of cynicism. See, the narrative of cynicism tells you that you need to protect yourself. Because nothing can be trusted. Everybody's in it for their own gain. It's kind of a cynical twisting of the soul. You know, it causes you to doubt anything beautiful or anything that's good and true. You know, nothing's beautiful because behind everything is something ugly. Nothing can be trusted. No one can be trusted. And this shows up in all sorts of shows. You know, I, I think of, of one of the most popular television shows in, in the world right now, right? Is, it's, it's a show called The Walking Dead. It's, um, it's a post-apocalyptic show with the zombies and all sorts of crazy stuff. But I think it's, it's something like 17 million people watch this show. I mean, like, crazy. This is, this is like uh, 10 million above, like, I think the next biggest show. Okay, it's huge. 
And so, but this show, what is the narrative behind it? It's interesting because what it does is it tells you that if you love something, it's going to die. If you love someone, it's going to leave. If you're getting, if something good is going well for a little while, expect that it's going to just fall apart. People are going to die. People are going to leave. It's not only is it going to just disappear, it's going to be completely obliterated in every way that they can possibly make it. So don't get your hopes up. Just expect bad things to happen. And if you are immersed in something, and, and you know, in a show where the characters are compelling and you get to like people and you keep getting your heart broken and let down and torn apart, you know what happens to your heart and to your mind, even in the slightest way? You become more cynical. But this isn't just one show. Our news is the same way. It always casts, ah, but what do you really know about what's really going on behind the scenes? So much of our society. And not only that, the world, its stories, it tells you hardship happens and you go, I can't let myself be hurt anymore. I've got to pull back. I can't be hurt anymore. I've got to protect myself. And that's the narrative that you buy into. And so I, I, don't, I don't trust people. I, they, they're certainly lying. They're in it for themselves. There's no way that their heart is good. Even when they say otherwise. And, and people can buy into that. But here's the thing. That is absolutely opposed to the Bible. Look at 1 Corinthians 13. The idea of cynicism is so compelling. Because it's the one that you can feel the most in real life. But it denies the gospel. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. It says, Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects. Always trusts. Always hopes. Always perseveres. Cynicism tells you never to trust, never give your hope fully, always be ready to pull back and run. It is so against the gospel. But here is the reality. This, for me, is the most compelling narrative. As a minister, this is the most compelling narrative. Because I look at this and Life shows me and tells me people aren't going to change. I've studied the Bible with hundreds of people and only seen a few people become Christians. And of the few people that become Christians, you know what happens? Some of them fall away. And when they leave, that, hurt, that breaks my heart. It breaks my heart. And what does it tell me? It says, don't give your heart again. Don't have faith that, that God's going to use you because people are just going to leave. This is as as a Christian minister. This is the reality of the situation. And the gospel just tells me, that's the world story, Mike. That's the world story. My story, Jesus' story, he says, I'm never, ever going to give up on you. Ever. 
I'm going to keep fighting for you. And you're going to make your decisions. People will make their decisions. I will never give up on humanity. I will never stop loving. I will never stop hoping. I will never stop persevering and fighting for you. But cynicism, the world wants you to buy into it. Someone's lying. Things are bad. And we've got to remember the gospel. God loves you. God loves humanity. He is not giving up. And if you're buying into cynicism, you're buying into the world story. So you've got to love the gospel story. You've got to love it. You've got to deny the world's narratives. And and refute them. You've got to own the gospel for yourself. And, And I'm going to bring this in, but... In an hour and 20 minutes, an hour and a half, I have make an effort on a weekly basis to try to just remind us that, that we come together to try to be reminded that the world story is fake. And we want to hear the real story, the story of Jesus, the story of the gospel, the story of redemption and love and perseverance, humility, generosity, right? Faith, hope. These are the narratives of the gospel. And to, to, to hold those, for those to mold your heart, to shape your mind, to, for you to be able to see those, you've got to own the gospel as your story. It is yours. It is God's story that He's been writing your whole life. The world does not define your story. The gospel defines your story. And if, if you're buying into the world's story, then you're missing out. If these narratives are shaping your mind, you need to be aware You need to fight to refute them. You need to fight to own the gospel for yourself. You've got a hunger and thirst for righteousness. There's a quote by John Piper. It says, The greatest enemy of hunger for God is not a poison, but apple pie. It is not a banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but an endless nibbling at the table of the world. It is not the X-rated video, but the prime time dribble of triviality that we drink in every day. Guys, it's not the big things that are going to cause us to lose our hunger for God. It's the little things that add up every day. And that's why we've got to own the gospel. We've got to hold to it. We've got to fight for it. We've got to, I mean, literally fast, like, Fast, Not intermittent fasting, because it's just good for your health, and you should do it every once in a while. But fast for the purpose of spiritual health. God, I want to hunger for you, oh God. I want to know you. I want to strive for you. I want to fight for you. To see as you see. To love as you love. To feel as you feel. Because the narrative of the gospel can do that for you. But only when you own it, and when you immerse yourself in it. Let's spend more time in our Bibles. Let's spend time in prayer. Spend time with disciples discussing what we learn from the Holy Spirit and in the Bible. Not just talking about the cool shows. Because those things do happen, and I'm guilty of that too. But man, we've got to be in our scriptures, in our Bibles, in the prayer, in the feeling the Holy Spirit, and talking about that together. That's how we own the gospel in our lives. So, when we think about it, I'm wrapping this up. This is our story. This is what we have in common. 
Consumerism doesn't go with God's generosity. Secularism doesn't go with faith. Right? You have... Nationalism does not go with the kingdom. Populism does not go with the sovereignty of God and God's plan. It doesn't deal with faith. It removes Jesus from the equation. Cynicism is just absolutely against love. Our story is the gospel story. Let's own it. Let's know it. Let's love it. And we find this commonality in it which transcends all these differences. Despite the fact that we are politically different, ethnically different, socioeconomically different, we are no different in the love of Jesus. And the love of Christ can change us, remake us, and shape us into the family of God. It's about a walk with God, loving God, knowing God, and helping others know, walk, and love God as well. Let's shape our lives. Let's hold to the gospel and keep his narrative and his truth in our hearts, in our minds, and on our eyes. Amen. Amen.